This is The Lydia Project, Conversations with Christian Women. Our name is inspired by the life-changing conversation that Lydia had with Paul, recorded in Acts 16. On this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of women whose lives have also been impacted by the truth of the gospel. Your hosts, Tori Walker and Taryn Hayes, hope that you too will be challenged and inspired by how the gospel truths are being worked out in the lives of their guests, ordinary women who serve an extraordinary God. Today, your host is Taryn Hayes. Hello again, and welcome to the Lydia Project Conversations with Christian Women. I'm Taryn Hayes. In the last few years, it has become sadly commonplace for Christians to hear of yet another Christian leader exposed for his, and in some cases her, abusive behavior. It is shocking. Sadly, it's becoming less surprising. And it's not limited to the stories that make the headline news. Abuse of all kinds are right now quietly unfolding in churches and Christian communities around the world, destroying people, families, and churches. It is in the light of this that our next guest, Dr. Diane Langberg, penned the book Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. I first came across Dr. Langberg when trying to understand the phenomenon of church abuse that I was just beginning to recognize myself. I'd seen more and more cases both here in Australia and internationally of abuse within the church. The abuse ranged from physical, sexual, emotional, psychological, and even financial. Victims were congregants, staff, children, youth, pastors, elders. I noticed, though, that there were some common denominators. Almost always, victims were gaslit and denied access to care, abused further by cover-ups and a reluctance to challenge the powerful. Almost always, perpetrators, especially those in positions of power or office within the church structures, were protected. Almost always, meetings are held behind closed doors with no transparency or accountability. We choose to protect the system rather than the sheep. How do we do better? How do we educate ourselves to know better? How do we even recognize the signs? How can we offer help to victims or find help if we are victims of abuse within the church? Well, Dr. Langberg addresses all these things in her book. In our chat recorded earlier this year, she shares, like all our other guests, about her coming to faith in Christ. She also shares how she came to recognize what abuse is and how it's impacting our churches today. She's exceptionally insightful. I highly recommend reading her book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. It's available with a 15% discount from thewanderingbookseller.com.au if you are in Australia. Otherwise, it's readily available from most other online platforms. We mentioned other books and talks in our chat today. You can find links to those in the show notes of this podcast, or you can go directly to our episode on our website by following this short link bit.ly forward slash tlpcwcw90. Included in the show notes are links to even more excellent books not mentioned in the chat, as well as articles and talks and videos and websites that I have found to be very helpful in both trying to understand abuse in the church and in pointing people to places of help. I've also written a review for the Gospel Coalition Australia, and that should be available from June the 15th, 2022. But for now, let's hear from Dr. Diane Langberg. Thank you, Dr. Diane Langberg, for coming along to the Lydia Project. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Oh, I must say, it's just so lovely to meet you and see you in person. It's I've been listening to you and yeah, your podcast for a couple of years now. So, 
come on. Very familiar voice. <laughs> well, now you have a face. <laughs> Absolutely. That is a great honor. One of the things we've found very encouraging over the last few years with our podcast is to hear how our guests have come to faith in Jesus. Um, could you share your story with us about how you came to trust Jesus? Yes, um, it's actually quite a simple story in many ways. Uh, I grew up with Christian parents. My father was a colonel in the Air Force, we traveled a lot. We had the habit of having a family devotional time on a nightly basis. And uh, one time when my father was off on some flight thing he had to do, um, I don't remember what we read, but I know it was it pierced my heart. And I toddled off to bed and um, couldn't sleep. And so I <clears throat> got up and went back and my mother was still up and I spoke with her. I don't remember what I said or anything else. What I vividly remember is getting down on my knees at her knee. You know, she was sitting and I, I knelt and put my head in her lap and talked to God. <laughs> so it's a precious, simple, you know, very vivid memory for me. I remember she had on a red dress. You know, it's just funny the details uh, that uh, someone picks up. Isn't it precious that God gives us those memories those pictures that are just that you carry throughout your life and yes yes it's beautiful and i was 10 or 11 i'm not sure which how encouraging to hear that you had family devotions on a regular basis and how that impacted you over time i can never under underestimate just how beautiful it is to be raised in a christian family um and to have those stories very often people say to me oh my stories are boring because i was raised in a christian family but i always find those often some of the most encouraging stories especially for uh, young christian families to hear that to hear the impact that it's had on on families who've grown up in christian homes yes and of course i have a particular sensitivity uh, to that now because i realize that there are many so-called christian homes that look nothing like mine behind closed doors yeah. And so, of course, I didn't know that then, and I'm very grateful for what I had, but they, they don't always look like that, no. and that ended up being the rest of my life. <laughs> I was going to say, you, we, you would know that very, very well. Yes, um, I do. The reason we're interviewing you today, obviously, is because of the fact that we're going to be reading your book in our book club, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. You didn't start in understanding abuse in the church, but that's become quite a large part of what you do. Could you tell us what it is, how you began your career in psychology? I uh, had a master's degree and started uh, seeing clients, you know, under supervision, and I was in a PhD program. Uh, to continue my education. I was the only female in my year in the program. It was not a thing that females did very much at that time. And it was certainly not a thing that Christian females did. So as I was going through uh, those educational years, I found myself counseling with uh, Vietnam vets. This was in the early 1970s. And many women asked to see me because I was female. And that was a rare thing. You know, it didn't mean that I knew anything. I was just starting out. But there was a sense, I guess, of safety. And it was from the vets and the women that I began to learn about trauma, which was not a word. Um, I mean, you, people took a 
physical traumas, you know, that needed doctors and surgery and things, but not what we talk about now. I began to hear stories from the women uh, who would say vague things like, my father used to do weird things to me. And I had no idea what they were talking about because of my own background and upbringing and things like that. And I went to a supervisor and was told not to believe the women, uh, that women sometimes tell hysterical stories. And my job was not, not to believe them because I was contributing to their pathology if I did. So I I quit talking to the supervisor, frankly. I made the choice to believe the women and listen. And I told them I had no idea how to help them. I mean, there were were no books. There was no supervisor. Uh, It wasn't something that was studied in graduate school. And so I basically told them they had to be my teacher first before I could be theirs. You know, teach me what it was like, teach me what it's like to be you now, and let's see what we can do together. The other thing that occurred was I was meeting with these vets from the war, and I knew some things about war. My father was in World War II. And so what I saw was that a lot of the vets from the Vietnam War that came to see me had the same symptoms as the women. So I, my conclusion at that time was there's more than one kind of war zone. And of course, what I realized at some point was that sometimes home could be a war zone and it produced hurt victims just as much as war did. It was just in a different way. And so I, that's what I did for years was listen and interact and try things out and see what helped. And I had no idea that would become my lifelong career. You know, I wouldn't have picked it because it didn't exist. I didn't, you know. I didn't know. Dan, I actually wanted to say thank you because how wonderful it is to hear how in your early stages of being a psychologist, you could recognize that you had a lot to learn. Um, I was talking about this with a friend the other day, how often when we get a little bit of education, we feel the need to come across like we've got it all together. And yet how much more valuable it is to recognize that we don't and be vulnerable yourself, I suppose, in front of your patients and say to them I'm learning from you is such a wonderful gift both to your future and to them in that moment to be trusted like that I mean these were people who were paying me for my time and they had to teach me and they were willing to do that and was that not a bit scary for you to say to somebody I know you're paying me for your time but I I need to learn from you it was scary for many reasons one because there were hints of what was going on in the statements they made and I didn't want it to be true either So I I had to fight with my own uh, capacity to deceive myself. That is also something very interesting because you mentioned that that self-deception in your book about how we don't want to believe such terrible atrocities. It's just easier to, to think that they're not there. And that is so incredibly damaging to the people who are the victims. Well, yes, they're twice damaged once by what's happened and secondly, by the disbelief and being discarded as somehow flawed or somehow at fault. So you've gone on to do a lot of work in abuse, particularly in the church. Do you find that that response is quite prominent in church circles? Uh, Yes. I mean, there certainly has been some change since the early 70s, and I've watched it. But nobody wants it to be true. The victims don't want it to be true. And particularly when you think about a church or church uh, community of some kind, you know, what if a little girl comes forward and says, the associate pastor did this to me? Nobody wants it to be true. And it's much easier not to listen to the little girl. And, you know, this, whether, or, you know, my father, who's the pastor, or my father who gives a lot of money to the church, or, and so these are things that nobody wishes to be true. And so our, our efforts to disbelieve are pretty strong. 
yeah. completely upends our world to believe what they say. It certainly has upended mine. You know, I have things in my head I didn't want in my head. They're there. How do you deal with that? Well, I've, I've had to learn, first of all, over time. I did a lot of fast walking in the early years just to get the energy of being distressed by what I was hearing. And there was a time, there were actually two times during my 50 years this year um, that I tried to quit. Just, you know, I didn't want to hear anymore. And um, I told God I was going to quit. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't. But the first time that I did that, what he taught me was my need to search out purposefully beauty. And I was drawn to the passages where he sat on the mountain, where he was out with stars, where, you know, in the world, the stars he put up there, for goodness sake. And I realized that if I did not feed myself with beauty, which is partly feeding on him, of course, but it's not just spiritual. I'm a physical person. And for me, it's nature and it's music. So I have deliberately sought those things out. And the other thing is my, my own family, you know, which has been a safe place. And we have two sons. And so I have purposefully sought out things of beauty so that I'm not just taking in things of darkness or damage. And I, I have taught my clients to do that. You know, if you grow up in a home where everybody's abused all the time, you don't even know what beauty looks like. And so teaching that and letting them see that it's an antidote and that it is also, you know, the abuse is true, but so is the beauty. Mm-hmm. Does it take a while to learn? Yes. And of course, I mean, it took me a while to learn. And I had a good childhood and everything else. But for somebody who's not experienced beauty, they don't even know what they like. And so part of it is helping them, you know, okay, go walk in a park and come back and tell me what you saw and what it was like to see. Abuse pulls you in because you're trying to stay safe. So being out and feeling any freedom or looking for beauty or thinking you're vigilant, you're not looking for beauty and you have a reason to be vigilant. And so it, it's a long, slow process in many battered lives, but it, it, it is something they come, first of all, they learn things about themselves. You know, people write poetry, people write songs, people paint pictures, people write little books to express the beauty that they've seen. I have all kinds of things in my shelves that are from that process in I don't know how many lives. So, and then as they discover beauty and bring it to me, it blesses me. You know, it's a two-way street. Oh, that's a beautiful picture. I can just, in my mind's eye, I'm seeing your shelves filled with all this beauty that's come through such terrible trauma. Really a picture of God's work through you in their lives. That is beautiful. What brought you from being in a private psychology practice to being so involved in churches and abuse within churches? Well, we had two sons. And so I uh, was trying to juggle both. My husband was also a psychologist. And so we sort of took turns for a while. And then I closed down my private office and started seeing people out of an office space at home and cut way back while my sons were preschool. Um, Then we took turns. So I would see a few people one evening while he had the boys, whatever. So it worked like that for a while. But over those early years, people, particularly women who were entering the field of psychology and were Christians, would ask to consult with me about cases, which when I look back and realize how little I knew at the time, I find it almost funny, but that's what they did. And we had a great time together and shared cases and all of that. And it was out of that, that the idea of, a group practice was born. And so in 1993, went on a big venture and 
water building. And now there's 16 or 17 therapists here and have been for years. And, uh, you know, almost 100% of them work with trauma and abuse. I've consulted with them, supervised them for years. Uh, I recently sold the practice, though I'm still there. And it's being run by a man who's been uh, here for 22 years, uh, you know, and who's traveled the world as well. So, you know, it's continuing, for which I'm very grateful. You know, now I'm doing things like this and reading, I mean, writing and speaking and all of that but I'm not so much seeing clients now and I'm not running the practice. That's a lot of experience. Well, what happened was, as the word got out about working with trauma and abuse, churches used to knock on my door for help when they had something. The bigger piece was that many of the victims who have come through this building have been abused in a church. And so that's what made me end up thinking about system things and how could some organization called church that is to be a follower of Christ, you know, altogether, be doing this to vulnerable people. There's something sick. And indeed there is. And so I began speaking about it. So when I would speak of abuse publicly and things, I would also speak about abuse and the church's lack of response, or not only lack, but sometimes doing the harm itself and often doing further harm when it's uncovered, when they try to uncover it. So um, it was just sort of a natural progression. I, I never, wasn't a plan. Yeah. I didn't have a plan. From what you've said in other, other talks I've listened to and in your book, you speak about abuse, um, the different kinds of abuse. My initial thought about abuse was sexual abuse. Um, you know, it's physical abuse. It's something more that you can put your finger on. But you also speak about emotional abuse and you speak about spiritual abuse as well could you unpack those for us what, what these different kinds of abuse i mean if there's sexual abuse or physical abuse there's usually other forms as well it's not like that's the only thing that's happening mm. but if you think about let's say a home where the father or maybe the grandfather who lives there or somebody is terribly angry all the time never lays a hand on anybody So the children are called stupid idiots and the wife is called names and uh, the voice is loud and screaming and never a hand is laid on anybody. The damage of that is unspeakable. You don't have to beat people up or sexually abuse them to damage. And you think about a child who is being shaped by being called these names and listening to this screaming and uh, name-calling and blaming and everything else, uh, the child will be shaped like that. So emotional abuse and verbal abuse often go together. Um, Spiritual abuse is when you use something spiritual in process of uh, abusing someone. So a blatant example would be, let's say, a pastor at the church uh, is basically having sex with little girls in the church, and he's telling them that he's their pastor, and they're called by God to obey him, and they're called by God to keep this a secret, and because you don't want to hurt the church by telling, using spiritual words, God's name, spiritual concepts to support the abuse, to silence the victim, 
you know, that's done to adults in, in Christian circles, it's done to children in Christian circles, it's frankly done to community, you know, so if you go and tell people about what's going on here, you'll destroy the church of God, and this is his temple, and you need to do everything you can to preserve it, so if you tell that so-and-so has been sexually abusing children for the last 20 years, you will destroy God's temple, that's spiritual abuse. That's evil, that is so evil. It is, yeah. all abuse is evil. One of the things that I've often wondered about is what what would you say are the key ingredients for creating a church context where abuse is able to go unchallenged for years and years, 20 years, like you mentioned earlier, and, and in some cases even flourish. What, what would you say those ingredients are? Well, part of it is that a lot of it is covered up for the greater number of people. So in other words, if there's a pastor who has been inappropriate with a lot of women through the years, if the women don't talk, nobody knows. And if something leaks out, everybody says it can't be true because number one, we've never heard about it. And number two, look how we're flourishing and look how big we are and listen to those sermons. And how could you possibly say such a thing? So the disbelief is very high. And part of the reason it's high is because we want it not to be true. It's not supposed to be true. You know, we want it to be a sanctuary. So if somebody comes and tells you something like that, there goes your sanctuary. And so we, we want to protect it uh, and deny what we've been told. And I suppose as well, there are more people in the structures to keep it a secret, to keep covering it up if, if it does start to come out. Well, they work very hard to cover it up. They're protecting the church. That's how they talk. It happens all the time now. We have cases like that in the office all the time. This abuse happened 10 years ago. These many victims, the, the usually men in charge of the church knew they were told they didn't believe it or they knew and knew it was true, but didn't want to hurt the church. So they've covered it up for these 15 years or whatever. Yeah. And, and these stories you've been mentioning, a lot of them have been around sexual abuse um, and especially of children. And it's absolutely awful. And I think for many of our listeners, maybe they are aware because these things have been in the news quite a bit initially with the Catholic Church and now very much with the Protestant churches as well. But we've also been listening and reading lately over the, maybe the last, certainly I've been aware of the last few years of abuse of power, I suppose, amongst staff. So having a lead pastor be quite abusive towards staff in order to achieve a goal. Like I think the most common case, the most well-known case would be Mark Driscoll. Um, but it seems to be quite a cancer within churches. What is your experience with that kind of abuse? It is a cancer and it spreads quickly. Not all cancer does, but that one does. And you think about, first of all, in that particular situation, you know, and you, many people have listened to the CT uh, podcast about um, Mars Hill. It went on for years. It went on for years. It wasn't like it wasn't known. And now there's another church with tons of people in it. I mean, there's a reason God calls it shame. <laughs> you know, we, we, we don't see the wolves. That's why we need shepherds. Now, you've used that term wolves and shepherds a few times before. And I think one of the things that it's really I found quite interesting is we don't see the wolves because they're dressed as shepherds. Yes. That is correct. What should we be looking out for as congregants, as people in positions of leadership, as junior pastors, elders, people who actually do have some level of power or influence or ability to speak up and be heard? What would you say to them about 
how to try and deal with that kind of abuse or any kind of abuse within a church context? I, I think, let me back up with something first. My father, you know, was in the Air Force. He was a very bright man and an extraordinary athlete and flew big planes. And when he was in his early 40s, he had to retire because of a neurological illness that nobody could diagnose. And I watched him go from all those things to someone who could not tie his shoes or get up out of a chair or anything. And I remember very distinctly one time being home. Uh, so I must have been early college. I don't know, maybe late high school. And I went in the kitchen to get something for him. And on my way back, he didn't see me where I was. It was in the doorway, but he didn't see me. He was trying to get up out of the chair. He couldn't do it. And so I had a thought in my head, which was a body that does not follow its head is a very sick body. And I filed it away. And then decades later, working with churches, that's what I realized that was about because our head is Jesus Christ. And when we do not look like him, we are a very sick body. And our head's harshest words were for religious leaders who were exploiting the sheep. I mean, he cracked whips and turned tables over and he did it twice. And he wept and he never went back after the second time. He's the Lord who said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. They didn't hear. So I feel like I'm watching a different body that's sick because it's not following its head. And I got a very physical picture of it many, many decades ago, but it has served me very well. And so when leaders or groups of leaders do not look like Christ in their characters, we are, we're not to follow them. They're not safe. And whatever they say verbally about who they are isn't true. They're using words, they're using scripture, they're using feelings, they're using all kinds of things to dupe the sheep, but they're exploiting the sheep. And that is a wolf. That's what wolves do. They're feeding off it. Not, not necessarily for anything sexual or whatever, but just for fame and uh, being known, feeling that power and all of those things. What should elders or other people who have some level of power in those structures do? Well, you know, we, we do get a good number of them in the office, often in parts of elder groups, not the whole, sometimes the whole asking for help. There are resources out there for help that we refer them to. You know, one of them is Grace, which is here in, in the States. I, I was on the board when it was started, and it just does wonderful work. It stands for Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment, which ought to be the oxymoron of oxymorons, but it isn't. But they have all kinds of ways of helping churches understand how to be safe, how to safeguard children, all of that, but they also do work with cases. So, for example, several elders will go and say, we need help. How do we expose this? What's the best way? Um, you don't want the people exposing it to be harmed any more than is necessary. You know, there's going to be flack from it for sure, but it needs to be wisely done. So consulting with somebody with experience like that is very helpful. But it is a decision place for those in leadership. You know, the God that we follow who came in the flesh said, I'm the light of the world and I'm the truth. If you don't follow him, you walk in darkness. You pick. It's your choice. If you cover this up, you're walking in darkness. You're not speaking the truth, and you're harming yourself and God's sheep at the same time. I mean, it's all there in the scriptures. It's very clear that what's happening in these places diabolical, full of deceit, protecting the things of man and not protecting the things of God. Yeah, and it's so easy 
oh, it's very easy. You know, you let one thing go, you know, the guy has a bad day, you don't want to confront him, whatever. When you do confront him somewhere down the road and he has a raging fit and you think, well, I don't want to do that again. Yeah. You know, we do it all the time. And what we're doing, of course, is protecting ourselves and protecting an institution, but we're not protecting the sheep. Yeah, I think I think what you just said there really resonates because I've heard that kind of response is quite common, you know, you know, when someone comes along and pushes back against abuse or speaks up against it, only to get that rage response you're talking about from the abuser or the protectors even. You know, I, so often those who speak up are caught up in the pain and the hurt and they recoil, they don't want to go back. It's just too painful for them. They're afraid of them. Totally. And years go by and that's, you know, there might be a few other people who confront the abuser over time, but they get slapped mm -hmm. back and, and each of these people kind of recoil. And it's a great sadness because it can take years before it comes to light. And even then it's very, very messy. Yes, it is. It is. It can take decades for it to come to light, frankly. And the people who eventually expose these things it's quite significant damage because they've they've got to stick in they've got to keep going back to be to be abused and i imagine that's often the people that land up in your office when they're asking for support yes yes well and, and much of what's been exposed in recent years has been by victims the amount of courage that that has taken i don't have words for it you know the most vulnerable the ones damaged by it speaking up against, you know, huge organizations who are not so huge that want to run over them at the first breath of something being not okay. But they tell, they've told the truth. You know, all the sheep in your pastures start passing out on the ground. Something is wrong. So what would you say to people who can be advocates? Because, you know, very often victims will speak to somebody else before, long before they confront their abuser. What would you say to those people who hear the stories of victims? and can be advocates for them? Well, first of all, I would say that whatever the victim does with that story is their choice. So you hear somebody's story, you don't want to assume they want to disclose it further, and you certainly don't want to pressure them to do that. Victims have been pressured to do all sorts of things they had no choice about. That's not good to do, and it won't help them develop their own muscles and their own thinking. So, if someone tells you, and I've certainly worked with victims over the years who've told me their stories and never gone back and done anything with the system, and that's their choice. So we have to be very careful, very careful not to pressure, um, not to require. But the question is, you know, over time, perhaps as a victim has talked and seen somebody for some help and get stronger and they say, I want to do something about this. Then there needs to be a level of consultation, which is not necessarily the job of the therapist, or if it is part the therapist, it also needs to be people who know the law in whatever country we're talking about, who know how to do these things in a way that is as protective of the victim as possible and as exposing of the perpetrator as possible. So I, you know, I have people that I have worked with for years, and if somebody comes to me with something like that, I say, go talk to this lawyer. You know, you know you're not pressing a lawsuit or anything, but you, what you want to know is how do I do this in a way that is not harmful to myself unnecessarily? Now, if it's something like child abuse, we obey the law of the land. That's what Romans tells us. Whether we like the law or not is what it says, basically. And so in 
in the US, if somebody tells me about child abuse, it has to be reported even if nobody wants it to be. I don't have an option. Same here. And domestic abuse is in many places uh, against the law. You know, so letting somebody go home to maybe get themselves shot, something you don't want to do. You know, that's not true as, as much as the child abuse thing is around the world, but it's getting there. Yeah, it really is. I wonder if we as churches should not also be helping to kind of educate the sheep about what that can look like. Absolutely. Because very often, yeah, we find these things out incidentally very often. You happen to be friends with somebody and not being able to recognize what seems like minor things are actually part of a bigger picture. And yeah, to be able to know where to go and how, how to go about it delicately, but um, helpfully, uh, it's not it's not a skill set everybody has, and to at least be able to know where to turn. Yes, and I I think that churches need to have at least a significant group of people who are trained in these matters, who know how to walk with people, who know what to do when an accusation comes forward, both on a legal stand, but just mostly being emotionally present and you know walking the path with them. Some churches want to do trauma healing things. And, you know, there are ways that you can get trained to do that in a church. There's a thing called Healing the Wounds of Trauma that has been produced by the Bible Society, which has been used uh, all over the world. And it, it's a small group thing. And it is a safe place for people who experience sexual abuse, rape, domestic violence, church abuse, whatever. And, you know, it, it's... Uh, encouraging to people. It gives them a place to have a voice. So, you know, churches need to be a haven for people who have been damaged instead of kicking them to the curb so they don't mess with the system we love more than we love God. The system that we love more than we love God. I think that's, that's such a key thing. Yes, it is. They like their system more than they love God. Yeah, absolutely. And how easy it is for us when we read those stories in the Bible to identify not with the Pharisees. And yes. yet... Very often, that's exactly who exactly. we are. We are sinning in exactly yes. that way. We also don't identify with the wolves. Yeah. And, you know, examining oneself with such about such characteristics, whether you're talking Pharisees or wolves, and they were wolves too, needs to be something that we do on a regular basis. It's very easy when you have power to use it wrongly. Very easy. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny you say that because in reading your book and again, listening to some of the talks you did about wolves and in sheep's clothing, I was able to many times go, oh, goodness, that I've done that. Or I've thought in this particular way, mm -hmm. especially as a parent with your children, you have enormous amount of control and power and, uh, you know, privacy to wield all sorts of manipulative ways with your children. And yes, and some are even lauded as as good parenting techniques <laughs> and actually then they're not when you examine what's going on mm -hmm. in your heart and why you're doing those things and you know and very often sometimes whatever we're doing is blatantly wrong yes it's quite confronting to realize that that's actually we're all capable we are and easily deceived what would you say to someone who is confronted by their own wolfness <laughs> What would you say to them when they're confronted by that as to what then? How do you, how do you recognize that and, and change that? Um, well, frankly, the first response should be, thank you. Somebody's held up a mirror. Thank you. That's not who I want to be. I'm going to go meet with somebody and 
look at this and figure out what's going on, see if there's other places I'm doing the same thing. You know, I think we call all of that humility. And if you think of something else that you want me to, you know, that you need to add to what you said, I'm willing to hear it. And then, it, you know, if it's somebody in leadership, I need to let the rest of their leadership know this is what happens, what I've been uh, told I'm doing. I don't know if I'm doing it to you, but I'd like to know. And, you know, go get yourself some help with somebody who works with people and can help you see yourself clearly and help you find ways to do things differently. How often does that happen in your experience? Very little. But if you think about the things that I just said, I mean, basically, they're all scriptural things. We, we, we judge things in an external way, not an internal way. And of course, the external is the fruit. But if there's success and large numbers and fame and all that stuff, we judge someone to be godly, good, gifted, whatever. How do they treat the vulnerable? And I need to ask myself, you do too, well, all of us do, how do I treat the vulnerable? And that can be quite mixed. Yeah, as we speak, I, I think of different situations and stories. And I think sometimes people can be wonderful with the vulnerable, but quite horrible to, to those that might threaten their power. Yes. And that's then yes. very confusing for people because those who've been vulnerable and loved and, and really loved well cannot imagine that there might be so opposite to somebody who's got more power. Well, I think part of that is that our desire often is to have a leader who's good. I mean, that's what we're meant for, right? Mm. And so if someone has been good, we don't want to know any more than that. But the fact is somebody could be very good with vulnerable people. Number one, what you don't know is whether that's partly because it feeds the person who's doing it. Because all these people think I'm wonderful. It be judgment. They make a judgment of that necessarily. And two, if something completely different from that shows out in a different arena, it's there all the time. It's just being handled differently. So we, we, we can see somebody who's doing good, but we can't assume that's all they are. The only person we can assume is that, is Jesus Christ. Yes, uh, that's, that's where I've always come around to, that we, as I said earlier, we're all completely capable. But the humility that you were talking about earlier is a beautiful thing to see. Yes. It's so te- desperately sad that it's so rare. Yes. And of course, Jesus' life was full of it. Yes. In your book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church, you speak of living redemptively. And I was hoping to understand a little bit more. I mean, obviously, I would encourage our listeners to read the book. But could you unpack that a little bit? What does living redemptively mean? Well, it means to live in a way that brings life. And it literally means to live in a way that looks, makes people get the fragrance of Christ from your life. You know, you're never going to have it 100% on this planet, but many of us have had someone or many someones who bore that fragrance in our lives. And that's our main work. Our positions aren't our main work. Jobs aren't our main work. Our goals aren't our main work. Our main work is to be like him. And that is redemptive. I mean, obviously, that's what he did. But he, he became little. He became like us. He entered in. And he lived redemptively in those ways, which are not the ways that power and fame and all of that go. They don't want to do that. They want the big. He became little. They want the easy. 
He's got scars. The other thing, living redemptively, one of the things that has struck me about what I do is that I will never meet a person who's been abused in any fashion, no matter how horrific it is, who is not telling me about something that my Lord bore on the cross. You can't, every story that you hear takes you to that cross. And that cross gives life, which is redemption. Wow. What would you say to somebody who is currently in a situation where abuse is happening within a church context? What would you encourage them to do, think, respond? Well, I would encourage them to be very careful who they talk to, but I would encourage them to talk. But it needs to be a person who is safe. So if, for example, it's in a church or it has to do with church leadership or something like that, what you don't want to do is pick somebody that is highly vested in the system. Because even if they don't mean to, they will probably tilt toward protecting the system. And they will say they do it because it's God's work. So you, you need to find someone who has some level of understanding of abuse and what it does and how much damage it does and who's willing to hear you and be with you in it and walk with you. And as you do that, consider what to do next. You know, it's not like you just knock on somebody's door at church and tell them what happened to you and expect you. It's just not going to happen that way. And it's not good for the victim if it does. You know, usually they need time to tell and things like that. And, you know, sometimes people will come and tell you immediately and you need to do it. You know, somebody comes and says so-and-so raped me. You know, that's a police thing. So it depends on what they're telling you. But, uh, you know, it was child abuse, whatever. Th those kinds of things require immediate action, whether, whether the victim wants them to or not, just from a legal standpoint. But most of it is often people who are telling you something that happened a while ago, even if it's just two years or something in the church. You know, it's not, doesn't mean it was childhood or something, but, you know, I want to hear what you have to say. I want to walk with you through this. I want to help you figure out what you want to do about it. We don't want to silence their voice by helping so much there's nothing for them to say. So that would be, I mean, you've, you've, you've covered both what a victim might do and, and an advocate might do. Yeah, what would your advice be to advocates who are feeling desperately burdened and, uh, you know, the weight of the stories and the lack of response? And, you know, it's, it's a heavy burden. What, what is your advice to them? And I, as, I'm, as I'm asking you, I'm kind of imagining already what you might say. I'm thinking, you know, look for the beauty. And oh, yes, I certainly would say that, which... It's very easy when we get inundated to forget that. It just feels so urgent and it's so heavy. And it almost seems frivolous to go look for beauty somewhere. You know, it, it feels less than. It's not. All that is beautiful came from him. So I think that's very important. The other thing is it's better if you're not alone. So if you have one or three people in your life who know what you do as an advocate and walk with you and we'll look at beauty with you or listen or pray with or something it's it's better it's much easier to get twisted by things if you're completely alone in them. so I think that is another important piece and then you know the other thing is you know I have learned I think sort of <laughs> to specifically seek God's 
response to what I'm carrying in terms of what it teaches me about him and what he bore. Because there's always something in it that I need to learn or see or stretch or whatever. And so there's this sort of human thing like beauty. Uh, you know, those are things you can touch and taste and handle. And so is someone to walk with, mm. someone in the flesh who will pray with you and walk with you as you do these things. But the other one is him. And he's not always so quick to respond as much as we would like, but he will respond. He will teach you and you'll learn more of him. And you'll look back and you'll say it was awful and it was worth every minute because it was precious. Yeah, that certainly resonates. There's an enormous beauty in learning more about who God is through through tragedy and, and trauma. Yes. Yeah, and, and in the process also having him shape us and grow us. Um, yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day that what makes it worth it is how he shapes us through it. Yes, we see him more clearly and we look more like him. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Always slowly. <laughs> yeah, and I, it's it's a little bit, you know, four steps forward, three steps back sometimes. Yes. Welcome to the human race. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's going to be so good one day when we stand before him and know that that is all fallen away um, yes. because of his grace. Yeah, it's great joy. Diane, Dr. Langberg, thank you. I've enjoyed this and I'm pretty sure that there will be many people listening to this podcast where there'll be many things that you've said that either strike a note or resonate quite deeply. And I, I pray that it'll be many people turning to your book and turning to others to help them, those who are struggling or are experiencing abuse. And in many cases, they might not even realize that they are in a situation of abuse. Yes. And I really want to pray for those in particular that the Lord will use this time together that we've had to help them seek help. Well, thank you. It's certainly been a privilege to meet you and to talk about these things. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Lydia Project. We would love you to share this episode with others, whether that be by word of mouth, social media, or leaving a review on iTunes. You can find us on most platforms using the handle at TLPCWCW. Special thanks goes to our platform host, The Gospel Coalition Australia. Music is Wholesome 7 by Dave Depper, and voiceover is by me, Jennifer Mary.